We turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We begin to read in chapter 5 with verse 22. 522. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. That is, no law will condemn those fruits and behavior in accordance with those those characteristics. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let a man prove, that is, test his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. That doesn't mean we are not to bear one another's burden, but the point of the apostle is if we don't bear one another's burdens for that, we will be held accountable. We will be held accountable alone for not being willing to bear others' burdens. Let him that is taught in the word, communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the spirit, shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. But let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not, that is, if we persist in that labor. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain to be circumcised. But the reason is this, only lest they should suffer persecution for the name for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He had been persecuted himself, as you know, and whipped and stoned. Those were the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, our spirit. Amen. Our text consists of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a Fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. 
bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When one thinks of Paul's letter to the Galatians, then one immediately thinks of the great assault upon the truth of justification and Paul's defense of justification by faith alone, which is to say being counted righteous on the basis of Christ's work alone and not trying to add our works to his works in order to be counted as righteous, for if we try to add our works to his works to be counted righteous, we're simply going to make a miserable mess of things. And so the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, putting one's confidence in the work of Christ alone when it comes to the matter of being counted righteous and having sins forgiven. But let's understand, though that may be considered a great theme in the book of Galatians that's really a subset of an even greater theme. And Paul's greatest concern, even as he was defending the doctrine of justification by faith alone, was salvation by grace and grace alone. And that's why to Paul's letter to the Galatians, there's two parts. There's the first part that deals with justification. And there's the second part, chapters 5 through and 6, that deal with sanctification. Because when it comes to grace, beloved, it's not simply a matter of grace for us, but it's also a matter of the power of grace in us that transforms us. Grace, beloved, sets free. And it sets free in two senses. Grace sets free from the guilt of sin and from the wrath of God and being judged in wrath. But also grace sets free from the bondage to sin to its rule, sets men free, beloved, to serve Christ as his disciples and as Christians in this world. And it's that aspect of grace that the apostle is dealing with here in chapter 6, along with chapter 5, grace that sets free from the power and rule of sin that a man may live unto Christ and actually show that one has been saved and is a child of God, a son and a daughter, you see. The apostle wants to make very plain to them because you are saved by grace alone Contrary to what you deserve, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean that doesn't matter how you live. It's all of grace. It doesn't matter now how I live. Oh yes, it matters how one lives. 
One will not have the approval of God, though one is a believer, if one pursues the way of sin. Don't expect to know the approval of God as you pursue the way of sin. The approval of God is found in the way of obedience and walking according to his commandments. And that's what the apostle is dealing with here, you see, in chapters 5 and 6. Our text goes back to what we began our reading with, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, which have to do with, with love and joy and peace and so on. And now the apostle is making plain how those fruits are to manifest themselves. We can talk about love, but how does love display itself? Well, how love is to display itself is if a man be overtaken in a fault, you are spiritual, you are to restore such a one. And what follows in some ways, it's all summarized in verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all. In particular and in a special way, unto them that are of the household of faith. See. The fruit of the Spirit, beloved, is to be shown in the body of Christ. And by the Spirit of Christ, we are one body. We are joined as one body. And having been saved by Christ, redeemed and forgiven, we are under obligation to Christ. Our obligation to Christ is to serve him. And we are to serve him in some ways as he has served us. Christ ascended up into heaven. Before he ascended, beloved, he ministered, did he not? I came to minister, not to be ministered to, he says, I came to minister to, I came to serve. I came to serve God, and I came to serve the people given to me who are the children of God. Now he ascends up into heaven, and he yet ministers. How? By his spirit. But not just by his spirit in a mysterious way, but also by other members in whom his spirit is. In other words, beloved, we are called to minister one to another. And so show ourselves to be members of the body of Christ. And before we get into the passage, let me just point out as well, if we are to minister one to another in the name of Christ as he ministered to us, then we are going to have to be free from a certain spirit. And what that spirit is, is found in verse 26 of chapter 5, the verse just before our text. He says in 25, we live in the spirit, let us walk in the spirit. And then he is making plain, and don't think you're going to walk in the spirit if you desire vain glory and you provoke one another and you envy one another. Of those things you better be free. Desirous of vainglory and provoking one another and so on. In other words, a spirit that is arrogant and ambitious and abusive and demeaning of others because you see, I am a bit of a spiritual sort and you are not. And if one has that spirit, 
Don't imagine you're reflecting the spirit of Christ. And don't imagine that you can possibly bear one another's burdens and be of assistance one to another. One better be rid of that kind of spirit, that spirit of arrogance and that kind of spirit of a haughtiness and a demeaning of others. And then, beloved, rid of that kind of spirit and that attitude, one may proceed to the text. And so the text is diametrically opposed to what you find in verse 26, all these matters of self-conceit, but it also is a text that explains to us how grace shows itself in action. One has been graced, and one knows that grace, and is conscious of being that graced, then it will display itself when we find in verses 1 and 2, also what follows, but first of all, 1 and 2, bearing one another's burdens. So with that in mind, this text under the theme, bearing one another's burdens, in other words, and then bearing what? Bearing them how and bearing them why. Bearing one another's burdens. That's the central exhortation of the text. And how we are to bear them is explained in verse 1, really. If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. And in doing that, you will be bearing one another's burdens. We're going to have to flesh that out, of course. But what these burdens are is also found in the former verse, when it speaks of a man overtaken in a fault. And what that word fault has to do with is sin, sin of a certain sort. And certainly beloved, in the first place one could say, I suppose, the the fault might have to do with doctrine, but basically it has to do with sin. In other words, what the apostle is speaking here of in this text is not so much the the burden of grief and sorrow that another may have due to some calamity or trial one is dealing with. There are those kinds of burdens as well. And of course, the word comes to the people of God that we are to have a compassion one for another when others go through trials and do what we can to assist them as they go through these tests and these trials and receive news concerning cancer and and grief and death and loss of loved ones. And there are plenty of passages in scriptures, of course, that direct one in that way. But that's not the burden that the apostle has in mind here. What he has in mind here is this matter of a fault. And that fault literally in the Greek refers to a trespass or a transgression. But I like the word trespass because it's referring to someone who has gone on property that is forbidden him and wants to take something that is forbidden him. In other words, contrary to God's commandments, says keep off and stay away, and instead of keeping off and staying away, one heads in that direction and wants to do exactly what has been forbidden, a fault. 
In other words, not simply a shortcoming, uh, a character flaw, you might say, but having to do with willful transgression so that one is being led astray. And as one is led astray, one is in an arena that is displeasing to the owner of the property who happens to be Jehovah God and says, you're not supposed to be here. What are you doing here? Get back on the straight and narrow. Not on this forbidden way. Now, the fault doesn't, could, could refer to doctrine. It doesn't exclude false doctrine because, of course, the epistle was written in the time of a controversy over doctrine, this matter of justification by faith and the Judaizer in the church trying to persuade many, well, you have to add your own works to Christ's work if you're going to have the forgiveness of your sins and be counted righteous and so circumcision and, and meats and so on and stay away from unclean meats. And they were trying to add law to gospel from that point of view if one is going to be counted righteous before, before God as though Christ's blood was in itself important but not wholly sufficient in a way with such false doctrine. One and some were being persuaded of such, of course, under pressure, and they were to be addressed, and the congregation was trying to restore them to the truth. And that can be applied, the one applied in such an extensive sense this evening, but we send young people to, to colleges and universities, and as soon as they are there, the theory of evolution is they confronted by the theory of evolution, it becomes a governing principle of all things. And of course, they're shown by men of a scholarly ability of the geological evidence and the fossil evidence and the biological evidence and how in the world can you deny that the, the world is billions and billions of, of years, years old with the universe as, as such. And that challenge is often as one goes, one's, one's faith in the integrity of the Holy Scriptures. And they have forgotten, of course, what the Scripture itself says, that those who want to maintain this battered evolution want to simply think that all things have continued even as they have in the past, forgetting about the, the flood and how the flood altered the whole of creation. And now what you're reading, creation geologically can be explained in, in, the, in, in, the, in the evidence of, in, in the understanding with, with the application of the, of the flood. So restore such a one, explain such a one, and that this assault upon the creation account underscores, undermines the whole integrity of the scripture. So one can go on, but that's not the real emphasis here, just on departing from scriptural integrity and, and, and doctrine. The em emphasis is on sin itself and walking in the way of sin, the breaking of God's commandments, taking of the forbidden fruit, beloved, so that one's carnal appetites get the upper hand and begin to rule. That's what the apostle has in mind here. He that is overtaken by a fault, and what you read in verses 19, the works of the flesh are manifest, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and so on. 
which has to do, of course, with a willful assessment of what is forbidden and then the desire I'm going to partake and participate anyway in that which is forbidden, overtaken by this fault, by the power of this sin with its attraction. What's interesting is how you, what you read here in, in chapter 5 when it lists these, these works of the flesh that the apostle has in mind in chapter 6, these overtaken by the faults. And one can begin, of course, with the faults of sexual uncleanness. It's interesting that that's how the apostle himself begins, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and, and so on. These aren't the only faults, of course, to be found, but that he puts those first. And he's reminding, of course, the, the people of God that we are inclined by human nature to be so susceptible to that kind of sin. And the age in which we live, beloved, certainly knows that as well. And so the evil one uses the world to assault us from every point of view, the sin of adultery and the sin of fornication and the sin of sexual promiscuity and pornography to ignite these appetites and to lead to these kinds of, of sins. The evil one knows how susceptible we are, that nature we have to deal with, and we better know how susceptible we are and take heed to the word of God accordingly. But those aren't the only sins, of course. There are also, of course, maybe uh, a one is guilty of poor business ethics and one is not as honest in business as one ought to be. And it becomes known that when a man says something concerning his business, you can't always trust that he's going to deliver what he has said he's going to deliver. And one may have financial difficulties and one has taken risks and one falls behind financially, and so one will take a, a larger risk in the hope of recovering what one has, has lost. And perhaps finally, it's even tempting to go someplace where you can gamble and maybe make a bundle and cover one's past losses by some good fortune, and one is snared by the sin of gambling or what have you. And the sins, of course, go on. One thinks of the sin of alcohol and drunkenness and consuming some alcohol and liking the taste and it soon gets hold of one and one is not so much consuming the alcohol as having been consumed by it and overpowered by it. The burden, you see, and the burden of that sin renders one spiritually incapable, incapacitates one in a spiritual way. The burden of the sin and one is snared. And we could go on, but let me just add one other that we must be certainly warned against, and that has to do with our tongues and the speech that we, that we use in, in the world. And so much of it can be a tongue that is given to speaking in a demeaning fashion of others. When we open our mouths, it's not to build up and to encourage, but to find fault and to point out faults. That's why you know in verse 26, the apostle speaks of envying one another, and when, when one envies one another, one tries to tear another down, and the way, you t the way you tear another down is to speak evil, point out faults and, 
and, and shortcomings so that others begin to think of, the, in, of, of that one in the same way. And one is snared, given to that. Or vulgarity and profanity, one is in the world and you work with such and that begins to rub off and as they speak and use these vulgar, profane words, another, you begin and I begin to use those same words. One is overtaken by a fault in worldly speech, evil speech becomes one's ways of speaking and one could go on. But remember, beloved, that we are speaking here of believers being overtaken by a fault. Not these are sins that just characterize those who are hypocrites, and there must be hypocrites in the church, and they are snared by sins. One can be a believer and be snared by such sins and put on a good face when you, one is around fellow believers, but out in the world it's a, another matter all together in the privacy of home or who knows what God knows and we know, but it's hid from others, and then it comes to light, and that, you see, must be dealt with. Believers, beloved, Scripture has how many names that shows that even believers can be overtaken by a fault. There was a man named Noah who became drunk, of course, and I'm not convinced that, that was the first time he had imbibed too much. I'm convinced that with his vineyards that had become somewhat commonplace, and Finally, he imbibed so much that he made a fool of himself, and that was seen by his, his sons and even grandsons, and a mockery was made as a result, overtaken by the power of sin and the snared by the sin. Father Abraham, he didn't lie just once about Sarah. You know, he lied more than once about Sarah. He lied again to, to cover himself and to save his skin, and the list could go on, as you well know. All we have to do, I think, is to name a man named Samson for all his power, all his strength. He couldn't withstand the sexual promiscuity, could he? And he fell, and he fell very low, did he not? And the name of Jehovah God was mocked as a result. So believers, beloved, overtaken by a fault. And not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians and go to various chapters of 1 Corinthians and he makes plain that there are those in the congregation who are back in the old ruts of their Gentile past and following certain carnal appetites, and they ought not be taking Lord's Supper as they pursue these ways of sin, and they ought to be disciplined and so on by the office bearers. Overtaken, says the Apostle Paul, overtaken by a fault, and that word overtaken even has to do with being overtaken in a surprising way. Now, when he says surprising, he doesn't mean necessarily that the fault comes and it just comes out of the blue, and I don't know where, where the sin and the power came from, but it has overtaken me, so who can say I'm to blame? No, he means what is surprising about the sin is the power, because as one has given oneself to this, appetite or desire, it consumes one in time. It seems to satisfy for a while, and then not only does it not satisfy, but it 
becomes a rule of life. One becomes snared by it. It's the burden that falls upon one like a crushing weight and immobilizes one from a spiritual point of view, incapacitating one from a spiritual point of view. So the power of the sin and it can overtake one is of kind of a surprising nature and one cannot extricate oneself from it all by oneself. That's what the, the apostle is getting at. It's like a predator, you know, out on the African field and you've seen the, the films and the pictures of a, of a leopard stalking an antelope, maybe a herd, and they're on a field of grass and there's some taller grass off to the side and the experienced older antelope are staying away from that taller grass because they're not sure what's in that taller grass, but a younger antelope, inexperienced, sees the taller grass and wanders to it and towards it. And the leopard is there waiting. And when he gets just so close, he pounces and he has his afternoon meal on that careless young antelope. That's the idea, see, overtaken by a fault because of spiritual carelessness not being on guard as we ought, praying as we ought, having devotions as we ought, arming ourselves as we ought, not in high alert, forgetting of our susceptibility. And so one is overtaken, and it comes step by step till one is ruled by it. So the apostle is speaking of those overtaken by this faults, these things that are forbidden, these, these sins, and they are burdened, as I said, because they crush one spiritually and immobilize one. So one cannot function spiritually as one ought in the body of Christ to one's own benefit or to the benefit of others. And then the calling, according to the apostle, is that we are to bear one another's burdens and the what way one bears one another's burdens is to seek to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Now, those who are called to do this restoring of those who have the burden of sin upon them and crushed by the burden of sin and the power of sin are called the spiritual. Ye who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. And when he refers here, beloved, to the spiritual, he doesn't mean to those who are spiritually superior. And because you are spiritually superior, that's why you haven't fallen and he has. And as the spiritually superior, you, you and I are to minister to those who have been overtaken. Now, he's simply referring to those who yet, who himself have not at this point been overtaken and who at this point are ruled by God's word. And as a man is being ruled by God's word and he sees that another has been overtaken by a fault, he is to seek to restore such a one. In other words, this is not simply the work of elders. Elders are certainly to be involved in this as it comes to their attention and their own exhortations and rebukes and encouragements and so on. But the point of the apostle, this doesn't simply fall upon elders and say, well, this is the work of the elders, and I know what's going on, and the man is my brother, but I have no words to say to him. As it were, he made his bed, he can lay, lay, lay in it. Let him take care of it, or the elders. No, the apostle is saying this belongs to the body of Christ, to brothers dealing with brothers and sisters dealing with sisters. You who are 
spiritual, you who are walking according to God's word and being governed by God's word and know that another has been overtaken, seek to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, to be of assistance to one that he may be delivered from that snare. Now, you hear that word restore and you say, that sounds to me what one is to do. One is to restore such an one. What's interesting about that word restore is it not only tells us what one is called to seek to do, to restore such a one, but even how, because that word restore has to do with repairing, but it's not the repairing that one would do of a machine that doesn't work right anymore, and the motor isn't starting, so up goes the hood, and you get out the, the wrenches and the pliers and whatever else you have, and you read a manual, and you say, well, must be the alternator, and you take this out, and you wire it back together again, and sure enough, the, the motor begins to run. You've done it according to the manual, and you've repaired it. No, that word repair is a medical term, and it has to do with restoring one again to proper health. And that's the key, don't you see? The picture isn't that of an engine that isn't running, and you get the manual and your tools out and you fix the engine and repair it. But someone who has been driving in a car, perhaps, and has gone off the road and run into a tree, and you are behind him, and you see it there, and you get out, and he has shattered his, his leg, and there's a flame starting in the, in the vehicle, and so you haul the man out because he is unable to do that of himself, having been in this accident. He has been overpowered and disabled and his leg is shattered, and you see that. And you and I can heal a leg. It's beyond us, isn't it? We can't heal that leg. But there are those who can. And 911, we call 911, and the ambulance comes, and they take that person to the physician. And there's the key, isn't it? Restore such an one. There is beloved one who can restore one who has been snared by a sin. We ourselves in ourselves, of ourselves, cannot possibly do that. We are powerless, but we can be used. And the one who uses us is the great physician, Christ Jesus himself. And what he will use us for and call us to is to bring this one to me. And sometimes, brother, brother, beloved, bringing another to Christ means we go to him. We seek him out. We talk to him and bring Christ to him and the word of Christ to him and inform him, we know that you have been snared. We know the power of sin. We know where you've wandered off to. And it grieves us. We bring you this word of rebuke and reproof that you may confess and acknowledge that, don't you see, in the name of Christ. And then pray that Christ will bring the word to bear and restore such a one in the name of the great Physician, ye who are spiritual, go in the name of Christ, with the words of Christ, to bring Christ to him that he may himself turn to Christ and seek the grace for forgiveness and for healing, because that may be necessary too. It may be that you bring a word to a man who despairs of salvation. He's so far down the road, you bring the word, and he says, when you consider what I have done, what I've been guilty of, how long I've been in it, I'm beyond forgiveness. 
what will the Lord have to do with me? That's the burden upon his heart to even make question his very right to forgiveness and being restored. And it's beyond me. And one says, I know it's beyond you. But forgiveness is not beyond Christ. I cannot pray, he says. You say, then let's pray together. I will pray with you and for you in Christ's name and know you of certainty that the grace of Christ is sufficient to forgive the sins of the greatest sinners, no matter how long they have been involved in this sin. Shall I give you scriptural examples? Ever hear of a man named Saul of Tarsus and what he was guilty? Ever hear of a man named Simon Peter and what he was guilty? Ever hear of a man named David and what he was guilty? And Samson? And yet we call them saints, one and all, because of themselves? No, but because of the power of the one who was their Savior and their Redeemer and their Lord. I cannot overcome this sin. No, you can't. But there is one who has the grace sufficient to overcome and to give you the strength to be done with it and to put it aside and to be restored, healed and whole and of use to the body of Christ again. That's what the apostle is speaking of here, see, restoring in the name of Christ with the words of Christ that one might be of service once again to Christ. In the spirit of meekness and how necessary that is because it may be that the one you go to with the word of Christ to rebuke, to reprove, and to seek to redirect doesn't take it very well. He's angry. Who are you to say these things to me? You think you are, are perfect? I know you. I know the sins you have committed, and you come to me. In fact, weren't you guilty at one point of the very sin with which you are bringing to my attention? And it may be. It may be that one says, yes, I too was snared by alcohol. You knew me in my youth. And I was guilty of drunkenness. But that's exactly why I'm here. I am a token of the power of grace. What Christ hath done for me, I pray that he will do for you in his name. One is meek, you see. And there might be some kind of a personal assault and accusation. And one does not respond in the same way. Bearing one with another and forbearing knowing this is human nature as well. But this, as Christ has dealt with me in his long-suffering to me and has borne with me, with me, I so do it with you. And you may say, of me and to me what you will, but I bring you the word of Christ in love for you, brother, to restore you to the service of the body and to the approval of God himself. And so in the spirit of Meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. In other words, not with some kind of spirit of, of haughtiness. How often, beloved, when there's words of discipline, announcement of discipline in the congregation, isn't that announcement of discipline and the sin that is stated followed in the letter by these words, let him that 
standeth, take heed lest he fall. One goes with the knowledge that as susceptible as this person was to sin, I also am susceptible and have been susceptible. And so I come to you in the name of, of Christ. And I'm not sent simply sending you to the cross. I want to kneel with you before the cross. Let us kneel before the cross together that we may pray concerning our own weaknesses and sins that Christ may forgive us our sins as we kneel before him together, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, knowing one's own susceptibility, but also magnifying the grace that has given me the grace to withstand the temptation and to walk according to the word of God. Such, beloved, is the calling of the text. Why, one may say, why should one bring these words to Another and seek to restore such a one to being of service to the body of Christ again. Well, I suppose I could say it's the word of God. God says you're supposed to. It's the word of authority. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Are you going to argue with God? He said that you're calling. At the same time, Beloved, God doesn't simply deal with us in that fashion. He simply says, I'm the Lord, I'm God. I make this commandment. Don't argue with me. Just do what I have commanded you. He could. But he gives so often more incentives as well. Certainly, it's the word of God that requires this of us. But also, you know as well, there is to be the matter of gratitude Consider what God has done for you in Christ. Consider what God has done for me in Christ. And if he has sought me out by his word and brought me to my senses and to the way of repentance and to walk in the ways of his approval, then who am I not to do the same with the brother? It's really Paul's incentive, you know, why he went to the Jews who abused him. Such, such. He, he had in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus, you know, who gave him those marks? Fellow Jews. They're the ones who stoned him. They're the ones who brought him to the magistrates so he could be whipped. And he brings them the gospel. Why, Paul? How they abuse you. They misuse you. They accuse you. Ah. But when I consider what Christ Jesus did for me because I once was just as they were, he delivered me. And my heart's affection is for my fellow countrymen that as God has delivered me, he may deliver them to and use me as his instrument in gratitude for what he has done for me. So there's always the incentive of gratitude. Who am I to despise another, to belittle another who's fallen into sin when I know my own weaknesses and it's simply a matter of grace beyond all telling. But there's also this, beloved, along with the matter of God's word requires it, it shows gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Don't forget, the Lord may also use one for the restoration of a brother or a sister. I'm going to relay to you a certain story that was relayed to me by an elder who, when he told me this story, was an older elder, but something he experienced in another congregation as a younger 
elder when he and a brother were sent on discipline to a young man who was, yeah, he was going to a college, to a university, and he was filling his head with all kinds of, of things and uh, didn't see much the need of church so much anymore and was conspicuously absent, though he lived in the community and near the church and showed up now and again, but without faithfulness and it didn't seem without, and when he did show up, it wasn't, it seemed with much interest. He simply had his name on the, on the rolls and had so far escaped formal discipline and erasure because he had not yet made confession of sin, a faith, I mean, he had not made confession of sin, a faith. So the elders have to go to him and their sin. And they have called and they have set up an appointment. And this elder said to me, and we knocked on the door. His car was in the driveway. We could hear some music in the house. But no one answered. And we knocked again and we knocked again. And finally tried the door and it was locked. And we left. But being elders, we persisted. And the next day I called the young man and he answered and said, we're going to be back again, set up another appointment. And they were back again, and this time the young man received them. They brought the word, reminded him of his church membership as a baptized member, and the way in which he was walking was going to be a way that was going to do him spiritual damage for who knows what part of his life to wake up to spiritual realities and to return to church to hear the word of God and of the one whom he claimed to be his, his Lord, did he not? They left. The next Sunday, that young man was in church and he was there with a friend and that young man was faithful in coming to church, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, with that friend, and in time made confession of his faith. After he made confession of his faith, the elder asked the young man, what changed your mind? First you wouldn't receive us, then we visited you. You didn't seem interested, and yet the next Lord's Day you, you appeared in, in church, and now you've made confession of faith. The young man said, but what you didn't know is that I had a friend who lived there and rented with me as well. And when you came, he was in the other room. And he heard you talk with me, the words you brought to me and the prayers you prayed with me and for me. And you left and he came back into the room and I apologized to him for the intrusion into privacy and so on. And you know what? My young friend rebuked me and said, I haven't been, I'm a church member too. I haven't been to church for over half a year. No one has visited me. I don't think they know whether I'm alive or dead. But you have two men of a congregation that are actually interested in your spiritual well-being and will come to talk to you even though you have set them aside. Now I call that a people who have a love for you. 
And he said it was like the lights went on, what I had been turning my back upon and back to. At least you have those who, by coming to you with the word, have shown an interest in your spiritual well-being. They know whether you're living or dying. And I returned to church, and he came with me, and now he wants to be a member here as well. The Lord can work, beloved, in powerful, powerful ways. Not all the time, but there are instances and instances where he does, and so one labors in his name and leaves the outcome to Christ, who can do that even beyond which we think, can think or imagine, such as the healing of a broken leg and the restoration of a sinner to the way of godliness once again. And so the apostle says, one will fulfill the law of Christ. He doesn't even say here, keep the law of Christ, but fulfill, I suppose, because fulfilling, keeping the law might sound as though one has kept it perfectly or somehow one has merited something. And he says it's not a matter of keeping the law perfectly here or meriting something. It's a matter of fulfilling it. That is, obeying it according to its essence, which has to do with love. Even as Christ has loved us. And when you do what is required in this way, one shows Christ's love. The love that Christ has shown to me, I reflect to you. And in reflecting that love, one fulfills the law and keeps what's at its essence and its primary purpose. The matter of seeking the well-being of others. As God the love hath sought our well-being, and not only sought it, but has accomplished it. You know that, do you not? A matter of grace. How shall I show my gratitude? I will be of service of, to my Lord, and in the body of Christ do what he requires of me. Even as he has done to me, I will do to others and show, show, so show how thankful I am. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for the work of the Spirit, for using imperfect means to accomplish good and lasting things. Use us, Father, as well. If we be snared by sin, Give us grace, the grace of the Spirit, to be set free from that snare and to walk as those who are thy children and who are those who follow thy word, seek thy approval, and are of use and service in the body of Christ to show our gratitude for so great salvation that we ourselves know and experience. In Jesus' name, amen.